Bradney. Blue Good. Light is the devil. <laughs> it's the devil. So, so, so some say. So some say. Uh, Mm-hmm. So, so it has been rumored through the annals of time that blue light is the devil. Uh, well, you know what? My eyes, all this zooming and all this uh, video editing and all this emailing has 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 wreaked havoc on my head and my eyes. Oh, I went ahead and I got some blue light blocking glasses. Mm-hmm. I've only been using them for about two days. I like them. Mm-hmm. Um, I like them. I will. I'll report back on the sleep thing. I I, I expect. I expect a little bit of increase for sleep, but who knows? We'll see. Expectations are the key to resentment. So don't oh, have any, or you may resent are, your glasses. I, I, you know what? I will, I will resent them and I will resent them hard. And I'll send them back to the manufacturer. <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't get any of those expectations met. Uh, but I agree. Expectations and resent go together. Like, like, Welcome back to the More in Common podcast, and we are in season five. What's going on today, man? Time flies, man. I just want to remind everybody that we are all about compassionate conversation. We try and demonstrate it here, and we grow uh, every time we have one of these conversations. And it is core to compassion that people deserve it just because they're people. That's it. It's not because you think they're right, not because you agree with them. Just because they're human beings, do they deserve it? So really appreciate you being on this journey with us as we explore what it looks like. Hopefully you get to explore what it means to you. And uh, we're going to get into another amazing conversation today. Today, we are with Don Hicks. Now, we were fortunate to be introduced to Don and are thrilled to finally be bringing this conversation to you. Um, Ultimately, it starts with what does gentrification look like what does it mean to you now i ask you the question have you actually thought about it or gotten into a conversation about it and all the nuances that go along with it don talks about it as a necessary evil the importance of this conversation and her experience to help the affected communities thrive is such an important perspective to this discussion and I always thought of it as a problem too big for me to help solve. And after this conversation, I realized that there is so much more we can all do to positively impact the communities in our cities. Mm, I can't wait for y'all to listen to this. But before we do, I want to remind you, find all things More in Common at moreincommonent.com. Moreincommonent.com. Thank you for helping us anchor humanity and compassionate conversation. Beep, bop, boop. No one's understanding how these, how how we live in our communities. I, I think a lot about the 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 line between the porch, the front yard, the sidewalk to the street. This whole line is how historically, even from African architecture, black people live on their porches, right? And how how does that extend? from generation to generation all the way to the street. So like this whole idea of folks hanging out on the side on the sidewalk or on the corner. Common wrote a whole song about the corner. 
I, which I love. It is so, it has all of these architectural and design references that people should follow, right? Because historically, that's how hip hop was created. All right, we're going to take a little break here. I want to tell you about something pretty amazing that we stumbled upon. A little ways back, we interviewed this amazing dude, Kwame Bowen, and he shared with me after the episode that his mother is a poet. And what's awesome about that is that he has all of her writings and all her poems, but what he doesn't have is her reading them. That inspired Keith and I to then start recording videos for our daughters. And as we started recording those videos, we started running into the challenges, the challenges of where are we going to send them to our daughters? How are we going to get them to them? Where are we going to save them? Is it going to be Google Drive? Is it going to be OneDrive? And then along came GiftPod. It's an audio memory that you can record and give as a private podcast. What they're going to do is edit, add music, and produce the audio that you provide them into a professional podcast that you can share with your family members for any purpose. We use it for our daughters in the future. All right, so check it out. In the write-up for this podcast, you're going to see a link to GiftPod. If you use promo code MIC10, you're going to get a discount. And uh, leave some amazing memories for your friends, family, loved ones, maybe for yourself. What, why don't you time capsule this for yourself? I don't know. So check them out. Giveagiftpod.com. MIC10 promo code. Welcome back to More in Common. Um, I'm Keith with my co-host Rod, and today we are with Don Hicks. Don is originally from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, she holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Architectural Engineering from the North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University. She also holds a Master's in Architecture from the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, where she focused on the social and economic impacts of hip-hop on architecture. Dawn has a passion for enhancing urban environments through influence of, influences of social, economic, and cultural forces that help shape built environments and develop inclusive communities in affordable ways. Her goal is to use her diverse love for music and design to enhance the future of architecture. Now, she is an Enterprise Rose Fellow, currently working with Venice Community Housing in Venice, California, as their community design coordinator and project manager. With VCH, Dawn serves as a key member of the housing development team as VCH initiates new construction projects focused on increasing affordable and permanent supportive housing options in Venice, as well as reinvest in several older properties. She is also an integral part of their property management, resident services, youth build, and advocacy teams, and engages a wide variety of other community members and stakeholders in an approach to community development and participatory design. Whew, that was probably one of the cleanest reads I've had yet. You did Welcome good. To the show. You did good, bro. Nice. Thank you. Show. Thank you. We're excited, excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so first question, I know you've been so nervous about this for four days. Mm-hmm. I came up with it this morning to make you feel better. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's actually something that we haven't talked about on our show in a hundred plus episodes. And I'm really interested. 
but I'm going to bring back our prep call. So I'm going to bring up our private conversation into this public domain because you said okay. something that, that intrigued me and I hope I heard you correctly. Okay. But you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned gentrification is a necessary evil. Mm. Mm, I am fascinated by that sentiment. You came out guns ablaze today. I know, man. <laughs> I mean, we hear, you know, like th th there's a fairly, I don't even know if there's a binary narrative. There's like a gentrification is bad narrative, but mm -hmm. to call it a necessary evil, like let's get into that. I'm you, you've you got the expert. You are the expert on this. I've never talked to an expert on this. So let's, let's go. <laughs> Well, you I, don't, I don't know if I'm an expert, but mm. Uh, <laughs> mm. you got some um, experience though. I, I do. I do. Yeah. Um, we do with my work with BCH with work in architecture, just um, and in construction and maintenance, just in general, um, just have some experience in it. But I don't know. And some people may disagree with me. They people will say gentrification is just all bad. Um, uh -huh. And some people will say gentrification is all good. But the word gentrification in itself is a problem, right? Because mm, it means mm. that... Let's do it. Yes, um, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are hilarious. Good. Start with the word. Yeah. Start with the word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because We're big it, fans it, of proper use of English language. So, okay. yeah, this is good. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll use it throughout this conversation. <laughs> okay. Not really. <laughs> um, but the word itself is problematic because it, it brings in um, a lot of things that aren't being discussed, you know, the, a lot of history. It's about people just coming in, um, property values going up. They want to, to change the way a neighborhood looks and functions um, to, to bring the property value up. And, and that's an issue because it's driving people out, people that can't afford to stay there. They are the folks that are coming in are not really about saving the history behind the community or um, I work a lot in cultural identities. They're not interested in what um, a neighborhood historically is about, what the community, how the community is um, already operating um, in, their, in that space. And so that's where the problem comes in. And I say that it's necessary because there are neighborhoods across the country that are just, that have dilapidated buildings, that, you know, have these pockets of emptiness. Um, and so it's good to be able to reimagine what the, what the neighborhood would look like and, and build up. But the way the gentrification process is happening now is problematic. Um, and I, I feel like it's just another form of redlining. Um, so historically in black neighborhoods, um, there was redlining. There were areas where, you know, black people couldn't buy houses. They couldn't get mortgages, loans. Um, and so it was, it's another form of separation. And I feel like some, sometimes gentrification is the same way. And, you know, so if we don't do it correctly, it's necessary, but it's evil because it's, it's pushing out the people that already live there. So I think that's why, you know. I'm not sure. I have a couple of questions and I'm not sure which to ask first. So I'm going to put them out there so we can talk about it. Yeah. Um, one of them is how many types of, like, how many ways does gentrification happen? I'm aware of, like, two or three off the top of my head, but I'm curious, like, 
or ways you've seen it happen. And then the other thing is how much of it being necessary is due to the way that the system currently works. Like public education is funded by property taxes in, I, I mean, probably most counties. I don't know if it's all, but most counties in the country. So education directly correlates back to wealth. Like it's kind of this loop. How much of that is tied to the necessariness of the evil of gentrification? I don't know. I like the first question first. Like how does it show up in different ways? Because like this gets to the point you made about, let's start with the word gentrification and, and how it looks. Yeah. Yeah, it it def- it shows up many ways. It shows up with um, building a new arena, for instance, and coming in and t- and taking out Inglewood, right? <laughs> taking out homes to build arenas. I'm not saying that's what's happening in Inglewood. I don't know details, so we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna well, specify. It's just an example. But you know, it was interesting because there's two examples because there's an arena that was already there that got retrofitted, which actually raised property values and stuff that was already there. And then there's another arena that did clear out land and buy people out and other things. So there's like there's two different types right there. Yeah. So my understanding, the stadium was on a a racetrack. So that's right. It was a racetrack. Horse track. um, Yes. Something like that. One of the other. Um, and they they didn't tear down any homes or anything for that. Right. But my understanding for the arena, it's it could be possible. Um, depending on I don't know you know what they're gonna do with the forum or, but but they are talking about a new arena. So oh, let's. Just I was say, talking about the forum. So there's another arena proposed. I didn't even realize that. For the Clippers. Yeah, so I've, I don't know the ins and outs, so I haven't dug deep into that um, yet, but they have mm-hmm. decided to bring the Clippers to um, to Inglewood, so I don't know what that looks like. But when I came, when I moved to Inglewood, they were talking about building a new arena, which would have um, been t- tearing down some folks' homes. The, is the initial plan that I saw. Mm. Now, I don't know if that's still um, true or not, but um, yeah. So that's a form of gentrification. I, I say a lot. <laughs> Every time I see a Starbucks come up in a random place in a neighborhood, then you know that that area is about to be gentrified. I, I feel like Starbucks is like the key. That's the kickoff point. Key yep, does. By, kickoff by point. now, by now. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, but it comes in many ways. It, it could come in in a school system where um, I've seen it, where they changed the program in the school system. Um, like they made a school um, like a magna, a magna school versus a, like just a regular public school. That's one way that that gentrification comes in because then that means that um, folks are more comfortable sending their kids to that school, and so they'll come, they'll start to you know buy more property in the neighborhood because they want to send their kids to that school. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. for everybody else, and 
mm-hmm. rent can't be afforded anymore. And now we got to right. keep moving. Yep. Yeah. So houses that sit for a long time, I've seen developers come in and, you know, buy these homes from folks who let it sit and just don't want to do anything with it, with them, don't want to, you know, pass them on. They let them sit there. They're, empty, vacant, and they look bad. So developers just buy them and then start to sell them for higher, higher prices because they have renovated them. Um, yeah, coming in, building down the street, there's a, uh, for me, there's a, a market rate housing complex that's coming in, but there's going to be a target at the bottom of it. So doing mixed, mixed use buildings is another form of gentrification. So beautifying these areas like a market street or or um, enrichment is like a broad is broad street, right? So it's this this long um, strip of road of buildings, commercial buildings that are, you know, that folks are trying to come in and and update and renovate and put in commercial spaces to make this a more active. Um, area for folks to go and shop and make make this area walkable, right? So, so what's the what's the order? So like I'm going to use Inglewood because I'm somewhat familiar with it. So like the forum gets redone, the Charger Stadium gets gets built. So what's the order for the community? Because like I'm guessing rents, retail, commercial, and residential go up which makes it harder for people who, unless there's a rent control thing, and that's a whole nother conversation, um, rents, rents go up. So that, that starts to push people out because it's now more desirable and people see business opportunity because there's a stadium. So I can have my goods closer to where there's going to be people, um, which also home values will start to go up. So like, well, how, how does the effect happen in a community when when say a stadium or mixed use home, target starbucks like what, what how does it happen from from what you've seen i think it varies right so depending on what is coming um to the neighborhood and i think that's what the what where the problem comes in because these developers had these thoughts and ideas already in their mind of what they want to do you know like these things have been planned for years um, that are coming in the neighborhood. And um, so you'll see property values start to rise or you'll see a Starbucks randomly, you know, pop in the neighborhood. And then you're like, well, I wonder why, you know, they're building this random, you know, building in this because area. Because people where no in the back are already aware of the plans and like it's, oh, yeah. things are starting to, and, oh, yeah. and is the community, yeah. and the community is typically, I'm guessing, not involved in the conversations. No, and then those, you know, so that's where I want to, where I want to be able for my work to come in because we already, they, folks have already identified, right, areas that are, um, that need to be developed and need to be built, built up. They've already been researching and figuring out, you know, uh, if this is a good area where property values can, can be high and, I mean, you look at the Crenshaw um, line, that that was in the works, I'm sure, for a decade, <laughs> you know, oh, so, yeah, yeah, so these things, people, people, developers, Did they know. Did that get know. approved? 
the Crenshaw. Oh, the destination Crenshaw is happening. It's oh, that's happening. Oh, wait, that, that one's been happening. There was a new line yeah. proposed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that the line of destination Crenshaw. Yeah, that's being built, and it's a great thing. But the community, like these things, are are great things for for these communities. Um, but I think for me, I question when do when do, when does community become aware that these things are happening? And I think that is the evil side of gentrification because it then to to the community, to the neighbors, it seems like it's happening so fast you know, it's so quick and they don't have the opportunity to ask questions or, um, or, Seems you like know, like, um, like unintended repercussions of maybe intended. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like, if you're not including the people that live in the community and know the community, then they can't say, Oh wait, putting that there is going to cause this, which is going to be a problem for whomever. Yes. And a lot of people don't, um, that, you're, you're right. I think a lot of times it is intended because you don't want to come in and try and try to have whatever you want to do stopped. You know, like you want to be able to come in and, and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. And so that's mm. when gentrification becomes evil. Right. So it's necessary because this area, I mean, that that area of Crenshaw. And again, we're just using this as an example because I have no idea what happened in this process. I don't know. But that, you know, that area of Crenshaw needs it, right? It You want it to be beautiful and, and, and walkable for the community. You want the community to, to, to feel comfortable and to grow, right? You want, you want it to grow. Um, but when you don't have feedback or if the the community isn't informed how can you build for them so um right because at that point it's just a money grab it's it's building for you or for whomever's in the circle there so i've i've always thought of gentrification as a bad thing but never really you know never really looked into it because i just kind of understood its effect and if i were to kind of summarize this in a little bit just to for my own mental processing and make sure I'm thinking about this correctly and then for whoever's watching essentially no matter generally speaking the the act of gentrification or the act of development and building has a positive veneer to it it's like we're going to build this community up we're going to put a starbucks we're going to put a target people are going to have easier access to certain things Low, you know, whatever it might be, right? food, clothes, all of the Caffeine. things that can come with a with a target, and then of course the wonderful five dollar a cup Starbucks, right? Five Which dollar is pumpkin a latte, great indicator. And this is going to happen typically in lower cost neighborhoods because real estate is cheap, and like any company or anybody, any developer. They're all looking to buy low and sell high. So that very principle of buying low and selling high as they come in to drive up property values of the owners, because I imagine a lot of the people that live in these communities, correct me if I'm wrong, are likely to be renting from somebody or may own the property, which could be a value to them because then they could sell their property for a boatload of money and go do what they want. But the people that are renting 
now need to keep up with the rising costs of rent because the 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 owner can demand a higher cost unless they're mm -hmm. rent controlled and mm -hmm. if they aren't rent controlled by avoiding having the conversation with the community you avoid their ability to enter that stipulation to say yes we will approve this so but we need rent control because we're not leaving and the reality of any system in this country and i will die by this this statement racism always plays a role because there is a fundamental fact of black neighborhoods being unsafe and white people don't want to live in unsafe neighborhoods therefore they don't want to live in black neighborhoods so there's this it might not be consciously deliberate by a developer per se it could be it likely can't i mean there's probably 50 50 but that that sentiment no matter what just kind of underlies everything that we do right and so over time you look at this veneer of positivity which to your point you have dilapidated buildings you have areas that could use some some cleaning and we have people willing to invest in it and that's amazing but it's not for the benefit of that community it's a benefit for right. the future community which is the evil right. part. I just, real quick, right. what you said, I just wanted to correct what you said, I, I know what you meant. You said the fundamental fact, you meant the fundamental perception of fact that black communities aren't safe. Yes, yes. It's not a fundamental yeah. fact that black communities are not safe, correct. Hey, but the a, thing is, yeah. white people want to move in these neighborhoods. So historically, so the, and this is the thing that is super important to understand that these communities are this way because of the systems that have been put in place that have allowed, you know, these neighborhoods to, to become dilapidated, right? I know in Richmond, there are a buttload of housing projects and, you know, historically, you know, things, things like, um, because of racism, things like trash not being picked up, um, adequately things like the the city not coming to do repairs to their buildings historically these this is what happens in black neighborhoods so now these neighborhoods are this way which the world has created right because it's black people and no one white people didn't want to live in these neighborhoods so but now you have this savior or gentrification that wants to come in and say oh we're going to make it better well you created this mess you know this is what you created so now you want to come in and fix it and do all of these things and then that means pushing the people that live there out because you want to come in and fix it and live there so that that's where the the issues of gentrification comes in and i think that's why people say in these neighborhoods we don't want gentrification like this is it's not for us. Um, you're not coming in to fix our problems. And it's it's not just about housing. It's about we talked about school systems. It's about the fact that these neighborhoods don't have adequate grocery stores. It's uh, it's about a, the fact that we we hear this in movies all the time, but it's like super realistic that every corner is a liquor store, right? Or like a 7-Eleven or some convenience store. But what about a bodega that sells fresh fruit? What about some, you know, these local things that could be happening in these neighborhoods that are not? And so when I say 
gentrification is necessary and should come in. Those are the things that we should be talking to these communities about. Do you want a grocery store? Do you want a Starbucks? Because nine times out of 10, people in these neighborhoods don't want Starbucks, can't afford a Starbucks, wouldn't work at a Starbucks. Um, you know, so why would you build a Starbucks in this neighborhood? You get someone in them. the neighborhood, right, because it's not for them. Someone in the neighborhood could make the best coffee. How can you set them up to own their own business mm. in this neighborhood? Instead of letting Starbucks buy exactly. it, like, exactly. and create a system well, that gives the community an opportunity to build it and run it and operate it themselves rather than making right. it for somebody else. Right. And you right. mentioned, you had mentioned redlining. And mm -hmm. I think one of the nuanced areas is, is I've heard some people say, well, now my house is worth more. I can sell it and go um, take that money and buy another house, which sure. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. that might be a thing you want to mm -hmm. do. Also, because of redlining, it's made it really hard for pe black people, specifically black and brown people in these communities to take that money and take things like equity loans and put it back into their homes and renovate and do the beautification themselves yep. because they can't get the loans. They can't get approved right. because right. they're a risky loan or whatever. And so then that just allows corporations and white folks to come, in. To come yep. in and do that instead of them where they could have been growing their equity, growing their and, and beautifying their own community and neighborhood. Yeah. And so that's also a part of educate, educating folks in these neighborhoods, right? Because they, they may not know that that's what they should be doing because all they see is someone coming in and saying, I'm going to give you a million dollars for this house that they could have bought for $20,000 30, mm -hmm. 40, 50 years ago. And they're like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm out. Let, let's, let's do this. We actually just had a conversation about this um, yesterday. I, I'm going to talk to a guy that I met yesterday further about the work that he's doing. He's an architect um, in L.A. doing this kind of work. And how do we start to say, even if that person wants to sell, how do we keep this wealth in the community? Even if that person wants to walk away from their home. OK, then that's fine. We can't get them to stay and keep it in their own family. But how do we keep it in the community? Because at the end of the day, that's really what it's, it's about, growing the community and the folks that live there. So um, I, I talk a lot about community land trust. Land trust, um, they operate in that way of trying to give, uh, you know, that wealth back to the community. So it's about buying the land and then the community owns it. You know, those type of... Um, those type of processes, those type of systems to be to to be able to say that we are rebuilding this community the way that we want to see it rebuilt. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a tough situation because it's not just one thing, you know, that has to be fixed also in these neighborhoods. The school systems right, have to be right, fixed. Yeah. The, the Food intake, the health, health. These kids have to be healthy to be able, you know, and their parents too have to be healthy to be able. So, you know, teaching them how to cook fresh vegetables, you know, community gardens, um, you know, it's, it's not just one answer. How do you teach financial wealth to folks that have been renting or have been on Section 8 for most of their lives, right? How do you teach that to them? They, they deserve to know, just like mm -hmm. everyone else, how they can excel in life. 
So mm-hmm. it's all of those things that have to come together to, to build. So gentrification necessary, but all of these things have to come into play to be able to do it. So it's evil because that's not what, that's not what's happening. It's, right? it's being done to, for the benefit of, of the wealthy, not for the benefit of the community. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Try and put a bow on it. Cause there's, I mean, we could talk about this all day. I think, <laughs> I think you, so. you have said and answered to Keith that, you know, there's so many things and it looks different ways. And I think, mm-hmm. That's why it's hard to, that's probably why it's hard to root out as a community because it can happen. It's happening behind the scenes. It can happen Mm -hmm. in different ways. There's not a set formula, like watch out for this. Then Mm -hmm. this is going to happen. Like it's, so it's just hard to see. Except by the time you see it, it might be done. Just look out for that Starbucks. Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that actually happened. I think, you know, in a, uh, I was on the other living on the other side of Inglewood and the way I would get to work was passing, you know, the construction of the stadium. And one day I looked up and it was like this <laughs> random Starbucks in the middle. Yeah. It just random. It didn't, and I'm it like, didn't fit. yeah. And it's right across from the stadium now, you know, at this mm-hmm. point. So it's, it's almost like there's a Starbucks at every corner almost of the, <laughs> of the stadium. But yeah, it's just, you know, and in the work that I do in my organization, we talk about this a lot about when we are going to build something in a neighborhood, we want to immediately talk to the, before we even acquire the property, we want to talk to the community and say, hey, this is, you know, what we're thinking about. Um, do you have any thoughts, concerns, you know, things like that. And those are the conversations that are going to need to to start happening when you're talking about gentrifying an entire neighborhood. You mentioned, um, and I, have you heard of the book Color of Law? Yep. Well, I thought one of the more interesting starts at the beginning was the reference to the impact of World War II on the development of projects mm-hmm. and not giving um black people the jobs or the housing that were developed for white people to have the jobs in these manufacturing because they needed the talent and other things and they Mm -hmm. built these separate communities one with fewer resources fewer things to your point you built this and now you want to fix it but you're not fixing it for me right Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. it's this it's it's the thing that and, and oftentimes, I'm not trying to explain this to you, but to the audience, it's, it's the, it's the <laughs> Let idea. Let me explain this to you, right? <laughs> you. you know, it's, it's that very fundamental nature of how systemic racism actually exists. Not I hate ever. you. I was getting ready to call out, like, this is racism. This, like, is, this what is, racism is what racism is. Like, this is, yeah. like, I've been on this train lately of making sure that we properly use the words racism, bigot, and prejudice because so many white people think, oh, I'm not a bigot when they hear I'm a racist. But it's like, no, we, we participate in these systems. Like, you should know mm-hmm. what they are or else mm-hmm. they will never change. And uh, Exactly. Yeah. And that's where, where everyone should start. What is the history of this neighborhood, right? The, mm-hmm. what, in that, in the part of the, the, the book, it's like, how did how did World War Three, World War Two, anything impact that specific neighborhood? Um, you know, even thinking about redlining, 
how how did that impact the neighborhood? What is the history around redlining in this particular space? Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that first. That's that's the first thing that you have to to realize and understand um, and think about. And and a lot of times it just gets overlooked because no one wants to talk about systematic inequalities and racism. No one wants to talk about that those things actually happened in these neighborhoods, right? They just want to move forward and move in Especially and live in their there. live their lives, right? They don't they don't want to know. They don't want to talk about it. But it, it happens and it affects these communities and you need to understand how it has affected the people that are that are living there historically. Yeah. It was recently suggested to me that one of the cruelest things you can do is is completely shatter somebody's idea of reality. And I think that's what white America is avoiding because America is is purported as the, the light on the hill, right? We're the mm-hmm. we are the example for the world. So if I see these things and like actually see them and understand that every other apartheid system, including World War II Germany, like was built on our legal system. Like our legal system was the basis for that. Like it is the racist system. And seeing that is like, there's a di- cognitive dissonance I think will break white Americans. And mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. just like, nah, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to believe yeah. it. Yeah. And that, that right goes back to the, the point earlier about the idea that black neighborhoods are unsafe, right? Mm-hmm. Because no one's understanding how these, how how we live in our communities. I, I think a lot about the 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 line between the porch, the front yard, the sidewalk to the street. This whole line is how historically, even from African architecture, black people live on their porches, right? And how how does that extend? from generation to generation all the way to the street. So like this whole idea of folks hanging out on the side on the sidewalk or on the corner. Common wrote a whole song about the corner, uh, which I love. It is so it has all of these architectural and design references that people should follow, mm. right? Because historically that's how hip hop was created. On the corner. This is this is where you know, we socialize. This is where we gather. This is where we come to tell story. Um, and white America sees that as, oh, if they're standing on the corner, they must be selling drugs. Selling drugs. They're dealing. He'll, he'll tell you that. Right. So, but that's not how we have lived. This mm. is how we live in our spaces. This is how we live in our communities. Um, and they aren't the only ones. I mean, I even had to explain that to my mom one time, you know, about the corner. And she's like, oh, everyone, people just always hang out on the corner. Well, that's what we do. That we, we, we meet up if we're not coming to each other's homes. We're hanging out on the corner, talking, shooting the breeze. And that's literally all it is. That That is the how things in our uh, cultures have been created, hip-hop being one of them. It, it started on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and so understanding that and um, my thesis uh, in grad school was was understanding that and how we have created these spaces just by living in them. And the street corner is one of them. And you have to understand that when you come in and, de- and design spaces for neighborhoods, their cultural identity, 
what is their cultural identity and how have they used it to live in their spaces? How many organizations real quick, like, just a yeah thing on that? Cause like the way you just explained that gave me just a really different frame on understanding cultural appropriation. Yeah. Um, Cause it's normally and, like the surface, the surface, like, Oh, you're, you're wearing, you're wearing locks, but you're white. Like, it's like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But like, this is so much deeper. Oh yeah. Understanding the design of cultural integration, the architecture, the, the, uh, the nuance of language and communication and communication styles and patterns, um, taking hip hop and loving the pieces that I love, the beat, the rhythm, the dance, but not understanding the words and the people that's cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just want to call it like that. That just like went off like a, yeah, because it, there, the white people love rap music, right? It's like, I Oh, I, they know all the words and they know, but hip hop is a culture. Hip hop mm-hmm. is a cultural identity that as black people, we needed to be able to survive and to, uh, you know, it came out of housing projects in New York. They needed that storytelling to survive the places they were living. And they started to create these spaces outside of the spaces that they didn't necessarily want to be living in. And so it, it's an extension of their living spaces and storytelling. So when, you know, when white people are like, oh, I love this rapper, that's great. You know the words to their song. Um, but when you talk about hip hop as a culture, that is a cultural identity for black people, you know, b-boying and, and uh, emceeing and all of these things are the identities of hip hop. And those are the things that I studied in grad school to understand how these things were creating spaces and how can, can we use these identities to create better spaces when, when gentrification comes in. You know, and that's what you need to understand. And it can be done for any culture, for uh, black and brown, anyone, um, you know, Jewish, whatever, the, the areas where they are living, understanding what their identity is in that space. Um, and what, what have they created um, in these spaces? How, how do they operate? How do they live? Um, and that's what you need to understand when, when talking about gentrification. You can't just come in and build a target or build a Starbucks and think that that community is not going to react or that they're going to thrive just because you. Because a it, it makes sense to you somewhere else in all of your other communities. It's like, Oh, right. you like this mall or this thing or right. It's uh. so how many organizations are there like yours? Um, it's a, it's quite a few uh, in LA. So I work for affordable housing developer and it's, it's quite a few. Um, my organization is a little unique because we're small and we do all of our um, our own work, right? So we manage our properties. We're a service provider. We have a youth build program that um, that that helps transition age youth that that age group, eighteen to twenty four, to get their GED or learn, you know, learn a trade, they're able to uh, go through a program to learn a trade. So we're a a little unique in our organization because we we do it all. We own, operate all of our buildings. Um, But there are a lot of affordable housing developers um, doing this work in LA. 
But that focus on the education and the community involvement and all that stuff, do they all do that or is that all unique to you? Or I want to say it's all unique to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, so DCA started out as a developer and then for a while wasn't developing. And so they started working on building their relationships in Venice. And so we've always had a strong like community foundation um, I've only been with BCH for three years, but coming in, I could tell that, you know, the, the neighborhood loved them. They know a lot of people um, in the neighborhood. And so my role was just to continue that, right, that engagement, talking to the community, talking about design ideas. Um, I do a lot it's called participatory design, where we actually get feedback from our tenants, from staff, mm -hmm. from the community about what they want the design of our buildings to look like. Um, I think that's unique to us. My goal at the end of the day is to create guidelines and of how we op operate and how we've been doing these things to, to put it in place for other developers. That's my goal. I would love to know if there is something like that in Cleveland. I would love to. I know we've, we've had fellows uh, all across the United States. So in, the Enterprise Rose Fellowship is a fellowship that's nationwide. This is the same type of work is happening throughout the United States in, in different it's, areas. It's one of those fellowship. things, like for me personally, as I think about the very principle of privilege and what does it mean and what can you do with it and how does it, how does it play? And I have been privileged to have been raised by generations of financial responsibility mm. you know, from budgeting to um, you know managing buying versus renting versus leasing and having just the just this foundation of when I went off to college as an example my parents gave me a chunk of money and said hey this is going to cover everything that you need, your food, your rent, your utilities, all of that stuff. I'm going to teach you how to do this. And then you got to go out and, and execute it. And I remember when Rodney and I lived together, like we had that conversation. He and I had that conversation. Now, mm -hmm. like just, just generationally, and, up, and you see it all the time, that there's just opportunity to share information that I've gained through just a different life experience of, of, in my opinion, my privilege of historical access to information, right? Mm -hmm. Like that mm -hmm. generational access to information, very different community in, in, yeah. in the black and white worlds, right? Yeah, and definitely. like that, so I see that and like, I just feel this pull and obligation to, to leverage that, to, mm -hmm give other people the privilege of having the information, use it or lose it. It doesn't, it, it's, right. I, I don't care. And I wish other world. folks were the same way. So I'm, I'm like complete opposite of you. So I'm first generation college. My parents just wanted us to go to school, but had no idea what they were doing. So took out student loans in our name. And after school at the end yeah. of the day, it was a struggle for us, right? No fault to them. They right. didn't go to school. They didn't understand what um, what what those type of uh, uh, the, the doing that, what the implications would be of 
taking out student loans. They're just like, oh, well, we can get a loan. They can go to school, pay it back when you're done. Well, struggling (laughs) to pay it back after school, like the interest, like all of that is just ridiculous. So having folks like you that want to be able to say, well, hey, that's probably not a good idea. I wish, you know, that my sister and I had that, um, you know, in our lives to be able to say. And so, again, that goes back to teaching people how to do these things correctly, what to do, what not to do. Um, even if you get a loan, what does that what does that look like? What should you be doing in your four years of, of college to not get out of school and be so far in debt? You know, those types of, of, of things are, are great to to know. So it's all about sharing, like you said, yeah. sharing and wanting to do that. Folks yeah. have to to want to do that. And I think it's not going to happen until racism ends, right? It's just, it, it's just not because yeah, the rich want to stay rich and yeah. they don't, they want to keep the poor poor. And it's very problematic until people start to wake up and realize that it's not just, we're, we can't operate like that any longer. I, I, uh, I talked to my dad about this a lot. Like it's hard to know what you don't know. And yeah. talking about like yeah. his family, and even the stuff that I've learned about finances and money since um, college, since talking to you, since talking to my wife and financial advisor and accountant, like things that I have now, learned things that like nobody in my family knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he's talked about like where my grandparents came from and like, yo, they were just trying to eat. They, yeah. they, they're trying to keep a job. They're trying to keep their kids safe. And, um, didn't really have time to look into it. They not only didn't have time, they didn't have a resource. They didn't have anybody that was like, hey, mm-hmm. consider this. Um, understand this. And so just to to add on to agreeing to everything you, y'all just said. So how did you get into this work? Oh, my my journey's been a little a little tricky. Um I don't I've always had this creative mind, right? Um my parents are not at all in that way, but they ended up putting me in an engineering program. That's how I got to ANT. Um, was very interested in how things go together. Um, I was good in math, loved science, so ended up in, in engineering, architectural engineering, because I love to love to draw. Um, but then realized that I didn't really want to go the engineering route, and so I went into architecture school. So I got my master's, but then after I got my master's and I moved back to Richmond, I realized, I started to realize these things right there we're having conversations about. These inequalities in neighborhoods and um, Richmond is so uh, historically ran around race, you know, being the um, the capital of the Confederacy and Confederate monuments and um, being close to Williamsburg and it it has always been surrounded. Um, actually, the the church that I go to was part of um, the division of the interstate. I don't know if you all are familiar with these stories, but in a lot of black neighborhoods, they decided to build these interstates to divide the community. Mm-hmm. So this is another um, kind of form of of redlining, and so they would build these highways and interstates. That, that basically uh, separated the black and white neighborhoods. And 
So I actually attended church that they were trying to uh, to tear to tear down to build this interstate, and the church fought it because it it was actually um, built by a slave in the 1800s. So it's historic. Um, but this interstate is right off of my church's uh, back, in, right in the backyard, um, and it separates the two these two neighborhoods, um, and so that those things started to become interesting to me. And even though in Richmond I was working in construction and maintenance, still doing some architecture and construction work, I was trying to figure out how I could uh, do more community work. So I was on the urban design committee where uh, for the city where we approve plans and, and things that were coming up uh, in the city of Richmond and then decided to apply for this fellowship. Um, so it kind of just... My my path went from engineering uh, to architecture, but then I like took a hiatus from all of that and was working as an accountant for three years. And, and so it's been kind of like seemingly all over the place. But when I got here, I realized that it was all preparing me for this role and mm, that I am mm. in now in project management and in community engagement, um, community-led design. It all of that now is working for me in this role. And so um, so yeah, it it seemed in the beginning it was a little sporadic, but God had the plan. <laughs> I was just trying to follow it, even though it was kind of all over the place to, to me what it seemed like. Um, and so when I moved back to Richmond, I just kind of got was inter- got interested in the history of Richmond and wanted to do more community work. So when I found this fellowship, it was perfect. For me to be able to to figure that out and like i said when i was in college in grad school my thesis was um around that and how um hip-hop is creating these areas of social engagement and how that can create space um and so that kind of kick-started it a little bit mm-hmm. so yeah um a question that is not at all related to the previous question but you mentioned a couple <laughs> things in there uh your church god uh things lining up Mm-hmm. I'm gonna ask a question and I'll add context later. Um, maybe <laughs> if we get there. Uh, what What does God mean to you? Like, what is faith? What is God? What does that mean to you in Man. your life? God means everything. I mean, I grew up in the Baptist church, right? So it's just it was when I was a kid, it was something that we did, and I I, I understood as a child that God was present. My parents showed me that praying, talking to us about, you know, the Bible, making sure we were in Bible study in the choir, usher boy, whatever (laughs) church was, we were there, right? And so I understood that God had a presence in my life. But as I get older, um, and as I was getting older, you know, things just started to happen in my life to just struggle, right? You just don't always... uh, get to the to the things that you want um for a little while while i was working as an accountant i was just in this a bad place where um this it was not my career i didn't go to school for this i was struggling to figure out my place in architecture and and so god showed up in that time where it was like a low point in my life to bring me up to a place where i had to say i have to have faith that's when I, I had to take faith into my own hands, 
right and safe for myself. My parents couldn't do it for me anymore. So I think at that point, that's when I realized that I had to take my faith and say, um, this is what I believe in. I know God is going to work it out. If you just tell me what to do, then I'm going to follow what you're asking me to do. And I'm going to keep moving and keep pushing and keep following until I am at the place where I'm supposed to be. And I think about that every day. Actually, sometimes it make, makes me a little emotional because I, and I'm not even an emotional person. <laughs> but to be able to have something in yourself and just say, I give it all to you. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know which direction I'm supposed to be going in. I give it all to you for you to work it out. And then you just tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'll follow it. I may not understand it, but I'm going to follow it because I have faith that I'm going to get to where I'm supposed to be. And that's kind of where I am now in L.A. If you had asked me four years ago, three years ago, would I be moving across the country? I'd be like, no, you're crazy. I've always been a mover, Virginia, North Carolina, New Jersey. I've moved around, but to be this far from family, I never would have thought that. And that was something that I had to do because God said, this is where you're supposed to be, to be able to push yourself um, beyond where you think you can be. I don't, three years ago, I would not have done this, uh, this podcast. We would not be sitting here because I'm a super... I'm an introvert. I'm a shy person. And people tell me all the time, I don't get that from you at all. But in my role, in my role, this is who I have to be. I'm in front of the community. Mm. I talk to people all the time. And so I had to move to LA in order to get me to this point. And that was all God. I just said, okay, this is what you're telling me to do. I'm going to put my faith in you and trust you. And I'm going to move and Look at all these opportunities. I'm sitting here talking to you guys on a podcast. I never would have, like, what? <laughs> no, my, my parents couldn't do it for me anymore. That sounds like a really profound statement. Like, so it obviously affected your faith and your relationship with God. It mm-hmm. sounds like it also affected everything. How you yeah. think about work, opportunities. Yeah. It's kind of like your moment of like, all right, this is me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, when you're a child, right, you think as a child that, that that's in the Bible. And, you know, when you, when you get older, you put away childish things. That also means that you have to put away childish thinking that, oh, my parent is going to pray for me. They're going to fix this situation for me. Well, they can't eventually. And they, they can pray for you. But they can't, um, they can't force faith on you. You know, they can just say a prayer and, and hope that you understand um, God and how he works. But they can't make you do that. And I think even though I was kind of old at that, that point, I was a little older, way past childish age. Um, but because I think I was at a low point. I realized that no one else was going to be able to help me but myself. Mm. And I needed God to, to, to help me do that. I, I, I was the only one that was going to be able to, to keep pushing, to keep working, to keep researching and understanding things that I wanted to do. It was only me, you know? So I say all the time, somebody pray for me. I have some praying parents and aunts and uncles. Um, but that's, that's all they can do, you know? 
that's that's up to a certain point and the rest is, is up to you. And so I had to realize that. How do you, with a few minutes to go, is probably too big of a question, but you know, <laughs> give it a try. Okay. How, okay. Do you, how do you experience God? It's a question I like to ask a lot. Man, I'm actually still learning. I'm going, I'm listening to a pastor um, every Sunday and trying to do Bible study. I'm still trying to understand. I, I tell my friends this all the time that sometimes I don't think I hear God correctly. And I, I have to, I'm still working on being able to separate myself from what God is saying, right? I have to be able to say, it's not, it's, it's not my mind. If I'm hearing something, I'm not the one telling me. Um, so I'm actually still working on that. Every, every single day, my prayer is, Lord, let me hear clearly what you are telling me and not to put my own self um, in that. Like, forget my heart, my mind, what my heart, my mind is telling me. I want to hear you clearly. Um, and it's, it's, it is challenging. It, it, it definitely is. It's, it's not an easy thing to do, especially when you go through hard times, but just continuing to clear your mind, um, read the Bible, understanding, you know, what, even if he's trying to tell you something, you may not understand, right, what he's telling you to do. So just reading, um, yeah, going to church is still, I'm still a work in progress. <laughs> Aren't we all? So I'm still working uh, on that. Aren't we all? Appreciate, appreciate all of that. That's, um, <laughs> Beautiful. And like, there's so much in there. Uh, but that's, that's really good stuff. It's, um, I think I ask cause, uh, Keith and I talk about a lot, trying to understand our relationships with God, universe, energy, everything, people. And then it's such a divisive topic for people. Like they, somebody will hear the word God or they'll hear the word church or they hear the word religion. And like, they already feel some type of way. And yeah. I think, Apropos to the name of this podcast, there's more in common between how so many people think about these things, even if it's named something different, mm-hmm. um, that I, I would implore people to like go past just the word that they hear somebody say like, oh, I heard you say faith. Oh, God, I don't do faith in God. Um, it's like, well, maybe yeah. you do, but you just do it in your way. And so yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that with us, though. Yeah, it's oh, it's no funny problem. because, I mean, you said three years ago you wouldn't have been able to do a podcast. I don't know. I think three years ago we wouldn't have been able to do a podcast. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> two years ago I wouldn't have been able to ask you that question. Um, wow! I started asking that question when we were in Costa Rica. Yep, and that was the first time I had ever asked somebody that question, and their answer, the way I received it, was very much the way I probably would have received it before. I just wasn't as resistant to it, and. Yeah. Um, I I've think what was to... different for you, Keith, was the way you asked it. You had, because it, it wasn't about sell me on God. It was tell me what God is to you and how yeah. you experience it. Yeah. And I think just from knowing you for so long, I think that changed how you were able to hear it. Because it wasn't about somebody mm. being like, this is what you need to get out of God. Yeah. This is what I and get out of God. A big part of it for me is... Um, over the last year, Rodney got me onto a book. And it's called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And he breaks this down in a way that I could understand it. And mm-hmm. now I've reached this place where I experience something that I think you would call God, right? 
And like, so when I, I love to Rodney's point, when we say more in common and the resistance to this God and faith and like everything you say and hear, it's like, I totally get it. Like I feel and I experience what you're experiencing with different language, different words and different Mm -hmm. thoughts, but at the same time, it's all the same thing. And that's one of the beautiful things I love about having that question in that conversation, because I think there's a lot that, that we can all take from, from anybody who is on that spiritual path to understanding their existence and, mm-hmm. and how their existence mm-hmm. is impacted. I have it's to say that, amazing that you, that you asked that question, because not a lot of people talk about religion and faith. And so that was awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I loved it. So um, we've got th- two minutes. I would be, to be fair. Um, to, to just time. Uh, we usually don't have a hard stop, but today we do. So we have one final question. And before we ask, before Rodney asks it, I just want to say thank you. This is thank been, you. It, it's a different conversation than we've had before. And I think oh, it's wow. really, really important and powerful conversation. And I'm super excited to know you and get to know you more. And, um, yeah. and we'll, we'll talk more on that, on that fellowship stuff. But um, before Great. we get there, Rodney. Absolutely have some things to talk to you about, especially for Venice. Um, awesome. So please do. I would um, love to continue these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. We're going we're to do that. Uh, the last question is now that we're at the end of this and okay. the audience is yours, what would you like to leave them with? What would you like them to think about? Wow. I think that may, that may be the hardest of all the questions. <laughs> um, I think one of the main things is what we've already talked about is this quote that I like to um, to use in, in my work that nothing about us without us is for us. Um, and so I just want the audience to, to, to know that it is so important for, um, for communities, especially communities of color, to be a part of... Um, of, of these processes and that is so many biases. We talk a lot about implicit, explicit biases that people have to get over, even within ourselves um, with, with everything that's going on in the world. Now, I think it's been awakened a lot. Um, racism has always been there, but it's just been amplified Um but now the world is seeing what we have to live in our lives every day, right? Um, and so I just want to encourage everyone to work on themselves, to be able to, to change the, these things, these systematic inequalities, just help to change the system and to be open to be able to, to do that work. Um, you, you have to have an open mind and open communication and having conversations like this, asking questions that you don't know, even if you think it'll offend someone. Let's talk about it, you know? Let's figure this out. It's a lot to figure out, so don't be shy about it. Um, yeah, it, it's going to take a long time, no matter who's in office. It's going to take, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to encourage people and plea <laughs> to please just do the work. I mean, it, it could be something. It doesn't even have to be anything big. It, even if it's something about you having a conversation with someone of another race that you just don't understand about them, have the conversation. 
that's helpful in changing um, the way this country is is running. Mm-hmm. It, it has to change. It we can't. Enough is enough. Mm-hmm.